You know what? I don't care what I want. I don't care what you want. Let's ask what the Lord what he wants. Where a husband and wife can get on their knees before the Lord and say, God, we do not agree on what the next step is. And I don't care what I want. I lay my wants down. She lays her wants down. And we say, Lord, what do you want? And whatever we get in prayer on our knees before the Lord and from his word, we're going to go live that out. That's the kind of marriage you want. That's the influence you want. Even with your close friends, you want to be able to say, hey, listen, let's seek what the Lord wants. Whenever there are two people in any kind of relationship, there are going to be different opinions. And if your marriage is anything like mine, those opinions can get very strong. In today's message, Pastor Daniel is going to show you that there's a better kind of relationship than one where both people are always fighting for their own way. Instead, you can each choose to lay down your desires and instead seek the Lord's will. Now here's Pastor Daniel in Joshua chapter 16. As he continues his message, Ephraim and Manasseh's inheritance. You can imagine for the Ephraimites, they didn't even think, even though they knew they weren't supposed to, they were contented to leave these Canaanites there in Gezer, thinking, well, listen, we could, it helps us, it helps us with our industry, our sense of materialism, we could use the extra set of hands for service, and all this stuff, and instead of dealing with it, they let it fester, and that festering ended up becoming a major problem. So here's the question, what are your Canaanites in Gezer right now? What are the things that you know you're supposed to deal with that you're not dealing with? You figured out how to keep it, like it makes sense. I had a plan. It's no plan. Any disobedience against God is a terrible plan. So those Canaanites in Gezer are not supposed to be there. I got to find a better way to say it than Canaanites in Gezer. Because no one's going to remember like, what's your Canaanites in Gezer? Excuse me, you know? But like, write it in your journal. Just write like, no Canaanites and geezer. Because this is us making soft choices that will later become a major, major problem. And again, if you don't believe me, just go read the beginning of the book of Judges. Because these Canaanites there in geezer began to corrupt the children of Israel. They began to intermarry amongst them. And they began to engage in the worship of the Canaanites And all sorts of problems happened. Now, again, you can't bring that up without talking about the idea of God's wanting the people of God to marry people who will only push them forward and not divert their attention. Now, really what it's saying is that what God wants for us in our marriages and in our relationships is that our marriages push us closer to the Lord. And you realize that in any close, intimate relationship, there is a ton of influence that is exerted. A ton of influence. The people who speak into your life in those crucial moments of your life have almost the most power in your life. Right? And what happens is, is that if somebody is married to somebody who's primary focus is not to bring glory to the Lord, to bring grace into a relationship, there will be an influence away. And God wants us before we get married to make sure that we are 
choosing to make committed covenantal relationships only with people who are going to push you closer to the Lord. People who are going to embody the gospel more and more. And I always tell couples before they get married, are you absolutely sure this is what you want to do? Because God's design is one man and one woman becoming one flesh for one whole life. And that's a long commitment. That's a long time. I mean, you're talking about your youthfulness, your middle age, your elderly years with the same people, with the same, and they're having influence on you. You have to make joint decisions about how you live and why you live that way. And all through the Bible, every time you see somebody marrying somebody who has a different spiritual outlook on life, you always see compromise. I mean, one of the wisest men who ever lived, God blessed him with unique wisdom, was a man named Solomon, the son of David. He not only had the tremendous pedigree and the wisdom of his father, David, but God also gave him special wisdom when he asked for it. But sure enough, along the way, Solomon began to marry women of other nationalities. And before you know it, he's building pagan temples all throughout Israel. I mean, the guy who is known for his wisdom didn't practice the very things he knew. So if Solomon is susceptible, how much are we susceptible? And so we want to make sure that in our relationships, are you getting good biblical advice? Are you letting people speak into your life who really love the Lord and who really you're going to not just tell you what everyone else tells you? I use this example because it always makes me laugh. There was that movie, uh, Fireproof, and it was about a couple in there having all sorts of problems in their marriage, and it was really bad. And the husband, he wasn't doing good at all. He was a pretty lousy husband, actually. But he was trying to do the right things. He was trying to put the best foot forward, and there's a scene where he's getting frustrated because he's trying his best And then she's with her girlfriends and he's like, man, and he made me coffee and he bought me flowers. And they're all like, man, he's just a scoundrel. He's buttering you up so he can take all the money in the divorce and all this stuff. And maybe some, but that wasn't where he was coming from. He was trying and they were giving her lousy advice. And how many times has someone given you lousy advice, right? You want to get good advice biblical counsel from people and listen in your marriage because a husband and a wife equal in the eyes of God you make decisions together and you want to make sure that you both can say you know what I don't care what I want I don't care what you want let's ask what the Lord what he wants where a husband and wife can get on their knees before the Lord and say God we do not agree on what the next step is and I don't care what I want I lay my wants down she lays her wants down and we say Lord what do you want And whatever we get in prayer on our knees before the Lord and from his word, we're going to go live that out. That's the kind of marriage you want. That's the influence you want. Even with your close friends, you want to be able to say, hey, listen, let's seek what the Lord wants. And when you have friends who say, what does the Lord want? That's a good friend. That's a great influence on your life. And God wants us to have great influences in our lives. Does that make sense? And that's why the idea of intermarrying and the issues that come from it are seen all throughout the Bible. All throughout the Bible. Now, moving into chapter 17, as I told you we would, says this in verse 1. There was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for 
he was the firstborn of Joseph, namely for Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war. Therefore, he was given Gilead and Bashan. And there was a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh, according to their families, for the children of Abizer, the children of Helek, the children of Azrael, the children of Shechem, the children of Hefir, and the children of Shemidah. These were the male children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, according to their families. But Zelophehad, the son of Hefir, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Malah, Noah, Haglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they came near before Eliezer the priest, before Joshua the son of Nun, and before the ruler, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. Therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers. Ten shares fell to Manasseh, besides the land of Gilead and Bashan. These were on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance among his sons and the rest of Manasseh and the sons had the land of Gilead. Now, really what you have going on here is now we're talking about the other half of the tribe of Manasseh that is on the west side. Now, what's interesting here, you notice that we are told in verse 1 that Manasseh was the firstborn of Joseph. Now, how many of you remember back when we were studying the end of the book of Genesis together? What you had is when Jacob was blessing the 12 tribes. He actually adopted Joseph's sons as his own. But he went to bless them. Remember, he switched hands. He moved his right hand, went to Ephraim, to the younger. And remember, Joseph got mad at him. And then Jacob was like, hey, like, I did what I did. Sorry. You know? But the idea is, once again, all through the book of Genesis, and really all through the scriptures, what you find is in that culture there were really two predominant practices that are subverted by the scriptures. First was polygamy or multiple marriages. Now you realize that polygamy is the ultimate act of oppression of women. Plain and simple. When one man is married to multiple women, it's the ultimate act of oppression for a woman, right? Because at that point now, she's splitting the time and the heart of her husband. And that puts you at an automatic disadvantage. It was a very common practice at the time that the Bible was written. But all through the Bible, even when people were practicing it, it's always seen in a negative light. So although it was a practice, I always remind people that the Bible narrative is not normative. It's like when the news tells you what's going on, because it tells you that somebody murdered someone, it doesn't mean that they agree with it. They're just telling you what happened. But it's interesting that the Bible always shows polygamy in a negative light. The other thing that was also very common that you find subverted in the Bible was the primacy or the place of the firstborn son. The firstborn son was the heir of the entire estate, got a double portion of the inheritance, and was automatically going to be the next leader in the family. But all through the scriptures, what you end up finding is that the firstborn son is almost always passed over for somebody else. The Bible makes it very, very clear. I mean, God chose Isaac instead of Esau, right? Out of the 12 tribes, God chose Judah instead of the three brothers who were before him. And in this case, God chose Ephraim rather than Manasseh, to the point where Ephraim, as I said earlier, becomes the larger tribe. And Jacob chooses to bless. Now, someone's going to say, well, I thought Jesus was the firstborn son. Where does that work? No, actually, Adam was. Don't miss that. Jesus is the second Adam, the second man. 
Adam was his firstborn, but Jesus was chosen. And so you have, again, what's fascinating is I love how God has a tendency to be subversive to the norms of culture. Now, by bringing all this out, what I want to remind everybody today is that Jesus still wants his people to be subversive in the culture we live in. That what that means is that our world functions in a certain way and everybody is looking for people to align with the morals and the ideas of today. And the church is always supposed to choose a way that has not yet been chosen. And listen, for too many of us, as we are hearing this right now, we accommodate the boundary markers of our society when we're really supposed to live subversively within it. We're too content to line up with the established lanes when Jesus is like, bro, I got a more excellent way. The gate is narrow. The way is difficult. You find it, but it leads to life. How are you accommodating in your heart lanes of living that Jesus actually wants us to subvert? That's a question that each one of us has to ask ourselves because it is the road less traveled. It is not the popular position. But if you watch how the church gets played in culture, what you find is that the church always ends up, not always, a lot of times ends up on the wrong side of a lot of things. Because instead of being subversive, we choose to accommodate. We're supposed to be subversive, just like Jesus. I mean, you realize that everybody wanted Jesus to be in their way, and they all chose that he was the problem. If Jesus would have aligned with the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Herodians or even the Romans, he would have been protected by somebody. But God's path for Jesus was a way that none of them could accept because it was subversive to all their positions. The Pharisees said, if you want to be with us, you can't be with the common people. He's like, well, no, um, those who are sick need a physician, not those who are well. In each way, Jesus chose a different way. And we have to learn how to do that, I believe. And for so long, the church becomes a pawn in the shenanigans of empire. When we're supposed to be salt that retains its flavor, that brings out the God seasonings of life. Don't accommodate. Choose to follow Jesus and be unique. Now, with all that being said, we start seeing the land that's given. We learn, of course, that the firstborn son of Manasseh in verse one, Machir, he's the father of Gilead. He gets the land, Gilead and Bashan. And then we start seeing all the different sons and what they get. And it is interesting that we run into, again, the five daughters of Zelophehad. We ran into them first in Numbers chapter 27, where they didn't have husbands or brothers, but they still wanted their land allotment. And we see here the fulfillment of them getting what Moses had promised them. Now, again, we don't realize it, but in the time that this was written in this culture, women getting preference and care was very, it would never happened. It never happened. And so once again, like when they wrote this, women were considered property. I mean, at the time of Jesus, women couldn't even testify in the court of law. And Jesus has Mary Magdalene be the one who announces the resurrection to the apostles. Like that's normal for us today because we live in a culture that has been shaped by the scriptures. 
But in ancient Near Eastern cultures, you'll never find it. And the fact that in this situation, Moses is like, no, 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 you get your land too. That was absolutely unique and once again, subversive in the culture. Now, I always tell people this because I think we have a tendency not to really think through these things because oftentimes in our culture, the Bible is portrayed as anti-woman, which is a total lie. It's the exact opposite of that. And if you don't believe me, look at any culture that doesn't have the Bible at its foundation. Now, they might not be standing on the Bible now, like our culture, but where they got the foundation from their society from, look at any culture that doesn't have the gospel of Jesus Christ at its foundation and look at the way women are treated. Like for many of us, we were shocked in the aftermath of September 11th in 2001 to find out that the Taliban wouldn't let women be educated. We were shocked. We didn't know that that was the case. And it is shocking and it's wrong, but that's what happens when you don't have the gospel at the foundation of your society. Like people always say, oh, the apostle Paul, the apostle Paul was a sexist, right? Because wives submit to your own husbands is under the Lord. But you don't realize that when the apostle Paul wrote that, he said, submit to your own husbands because everybody knew that in Christ, you have the freedom not to. No, he thinks about it. Like, oh yeah, Paul's oppressing women. And I always remind people like, hey, Wives are asked to submit to their husbands. Husbands are asked to die for their wives. If someone's getting a bad deal, it's the husbands, don't you think? I mean, like, like if you go, okay, hey, listen, okay, we got something we're gonna do here. Here's your, you get two options, submit or die. Which one you want? Anyone gonna say that the women got the worst deal here? Now, don't get me wrong. When you separate biblical submission from self-sacrificial love, You have oppression. You absolutely do. And that's how people choose to interpret it. They say, wives submit without asking a husband to love completely sacrificially for the benefit of your wife. So when you separate them, you get oppression. But when you put them together, you know what you get? An amazing marriage. Because when a man is willing to put his bride before his own needs, it's easy for a wife to submit to that because she knows he's not in it for himself. He's here to help me. He's here to be my partner in this thing. But when you try and separate them out, you isolate them, which is how all bad theology happens. When you take a verse and you take it out of its context and you put it up on its own, you always get an aberration. But when you put it together, you realize that what God is setting up is a matrix of mutual humility that a husband goes before the Lord and says, Lord, let me die to myself for my bride. And then a wife goes before the Lord and says, Lord, I'm going to submit to this man who's seeking to submit to you. And when that happens, now all of a sudden you have this beautiful matrix of humility where a man and a woman meet together and walk together and choose to love the Lord and honor the Lord and each other. And at the same time, you have to realize that a culture where you have over 50% divorce rate really has no moral authority to talk about what a good marriage is. But the key for us, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, we need to live in such a way that our marriages reflect the good news of Jesus. That we say, Lord, teach me, Lord. See, and I always love this idea of, you know, when, you, when you're looking at this idea of dying to yourself and submission, because obviously you realize, and if you read Ephesians 5, before it gets into the roles of marriage, it says submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. So really you have everyone submitting and then wives, hey, don't forget to to your husband as well. It's fascinating. See, people don't put it in context. They don't even talk about these things. They say, oh, the Bible's sexist. It's not. Find any other Near Eastern document where women are given 
They're protected. In this case, they're given land. You'll never find it. It's impossible to find. It's only here in the scriptures, which again shows part of what God is doing. And so we see the fulfillment of all that that was going on. Now, continuing on, it says, picking up in verse seven, and the territory of Manasseh was from Asher to Machmetheth, and uh, that lies east of Shechem, and the border then went along the south to the inhabitants of En Tapua. Manasseh had the land of Tapua, but Tapua on the border of Manasseh belonged to the children of Ephraim, and the border descended to the brook Kenath, southward to the brook. The cities of Ephraim are among the cities of Manasseh. The border of Manasseh was on the north side of the brook. And it ended at the sea southward. It was Ephraim's northward. It was Manasseh's. And the sea was its border. Manasseh's boundary or territory was adjoining Asher on the north and Issachar on the east. And in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Bethshean and its towns Iblaim and its towns and the inhabitants of Dor and its towns and the inhabitants of Endor and its towns, the inhabitants of Tanakh and its towns, the inhabitants of Megiddo and its towns, three hilly regions. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it happened when the children of Israel grew strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. So now what you begin to see is that the land is not perfectly divided. There is overlap. People have different places. Of unique note here is that you find that the western portion of the half-tribe of Manasseh in the end of verse 10, it says that they're adjoining Ephraim and then Asher is on the north and Issachar is on their east. Okay, so you kind of get within the 12 tribes where they are. Now, what is also interesting is that in verse 11, you find that they get the inhabitants of Megiddo. Now, I only bring this up just because how many of you ever heard the word Armageddon? Okay, well, Ar means the mount or the hill and Megiddo is Megiddon. So literally Armageddon means the hill or the mount of Megiddo, which was given to Manasseh. Now, Armageddon is the place of battle that is explained and expressed in the end of the book of Revelation. But when people think about Armageddon, I mean, I always think about Bruce Willis showing up and saving the day. Because I'm a child of the 80s, and if there's a, some sort of a problem, if Bruce is around, it's all going to be good. But Armageddon, it literally means the Mount of Megiddo. That's what it literally means. People don't realize that. They're like, well, Armageddon. It's like, it's the Mount Megiddo. That's really what it is. That's where the word comes from. So you can impress your friends with your biblical knowledge at another point. Now, what's also interesting, verses 12 and 13, we are reminded here that unlike the Ephraimites where they chose not to buy them out, we see here that the children of Manasseh tried to drive the Canaanites out, but they couldn't. Now, in the same way wanting to be able to apply this to our lives. There are certain things that go on in our lives that no matter how much we try, we really can't do it on our own. And brothers and sisters, that's why God called us to be a family. Jesus is What are your Canaanites in Gezer right now? Those things that God has directed you to deal with or get rid of, but you're just avoiding it, excusing it, or rationalizing why you need them. Today, Pastor Daniel showed us through the stories of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh 
that any disobedience against God is a terrible plan. Soft choices now become a major problem later, like those pesky Canaanites in Gezer. Hey everyone, there's a lot happening in the world, and it can keep you pretty busy. But I want to encourage you to take some time and devote it to your spiritual growth. I know God wants to do something in your life, and I'm excited for you to discover exactly what that is. Come join me for a worship service at Crossroads Community Church Online so I can share the Bible with you. Join me online at crossroadschurch.net or find me on Facebook Live. We're so glad we can be a part of your life through the ministry of Jesus' Real Radio. Would you like to be a part of what we're doing? We would like to ask that you prayerfully consider becoming a financial partner of this program. Your contribution, no matter the size, will be used to reach people with the gospel message. Find out more at JesusIsRealRadio.com. Thank you for partnering with us. Thanks for joining us as Pastor Daniel has shown us the importance of obedience through the stories of the Israelites as they settled the land of Canaan, the land of promise. He's not done yet, though. There's still so much more for you to learn from the tribes of Israel and how they responded to the promises and commands of God. The challenges they faced are still here for you to face today, and you'll want to be ready. Well, that's all the time we have for today's broadcast. On behalf of Pastor Daniel and the entire production team, we invite you to join us again for the next edition of Jesus is Real Radio.